Bienvenidos niños y niñas. Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavir, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. In this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to my very good friend, Emily Fletcher. Emily is a world-renowned meditation teacher and the author of the new book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, Meditation for Extraordinary Performance. I love Emily. She's brilliant, beautiful, well-spoken, and really conveys the power and simplicity of meditation in a dogma-free way. In fact, she taught me, a neurotic New Yorker, to meditate, a skill which I'll now have with me forever. And I purposely use the word skill because that's what meditation is. You need to learn how to do it properly, just like riding a bike or knowing how to swim. And once you learn, you'll have it with you for life no matter where you find yourself. Over the next hour, you're going to discover how meditation acts like a cleanse for your mind. Why meditation isn't about stopping your thoughts or sitting in weird, uncomfortable positions. Nuh-uh. The key differences between mindfulness and meditation, along with a simple protocol for each. How meditation can boost your sex drive. And so much more. I'm so excited to get into it. And I feel like this is one of those episodes that you're going to come back to again and again. This episode of the show is brought to you by Birch Bender's new Keto Waffle and Pancake Mix. Now, I know what you're thinking. Max, what? Keto and Waffle Pancake Mix? That is so against your moral code. Well, actually, no, guys. This Keto Pancake and Waffle Mix is made of whole food ingredients. No weird fiber extracts, sugar, alcohols, or anything like that. The ingredients are almond flour, eggs, tiger nut flour, coconut flour, cassava, buttermilk, Baking soda and baking powder, salt and spice. That's it, you guys. For two pancakes, there are nine grams of protein. There's only five grams of net carbs. And most importantly, you guys, all you do is add water. I've tried these pancakes. They are really delicious. Again, they're low glycemic, they're low carb, grain-free, gluten-free, no added sugar. When they sent me the mix to try, I uh, made a few, I threw some eggs over it, and gotta tell you, the pancakes were incredibly satiating. Um, a single serving has five grams of dietary fiber. Again, not from these weird fiber extracts that you don't know whether or not they actually act like fiber in the body, no. The fiber comes from almond flour, tiger nut flour, which is rich in resistant starch, super, super healthy. Um, coconut flour, and whether or not you are on a ketogenic diet, typical pancake mixes are loaded with garbage, just like utter abject garbage. So if you'd like to enjoy some pancakes or waffles now and then, give Birch Bender's Keto Pancake Mix a try. You can go to birchbenders.com and use promo code MAX to save 15% off. Birchbenders.com, promo code MAX. 15% off. Now we're just seconds away from my chat with Mrs. Emily Fletcher, author of the new book, Stress Less, Accomplish More. I'm really excited for you guys to hear our chat. But before we do, please take a moment to support The Genius Life. Leave a rating and review for this podcast on iTunes. Honestly, I read every single review. And if there's any way that you think that I can improve the quality of this show, I'm all ears. So let me know. That would be super appreciated. The second way that you can support The Genius Life is by going to maxlugavir.com, which is my website. You'll also find all the podcast um, show notes there, as well as other articles that I've written. Um, and join my newsletter. By doing that, it allows me to send personal updates to you about projects that I'm working on, products that I think you might dig, science that has the potential to improve your life, and so much more. And by signing up, I'm going to send you instantly a guide, a PDF guide to 11 supplements that you can use to boost your brain function, potentially. And the third and final way that you can support The Genius Life is by spreading the word about it. Take a screen grab, post it up on your Instagram stories, share your favorite quote from this episode from either me or Emily and tag us. It really helps to grow the show and that's only going to help me continue to bring you high quality interviews week after week. All right, guys, that's enough for me. Here we go with episode 46 of The Genius Life. Emily, welcome to The Genius Life. Whoa. Am I a genius now that I'm on the podcast? <laughs> well, you were a genius before. <laughs> oh, on the podcast. thank you. But, um, 
Yeah, I'm super glad to have you here. Where uh, for those of you guys listening, me and Emily are really good friends, and she is my meditation teacher, and she's putting out this incredible book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, and we're going to talk about that. But um, I want you guys to really get to know Emily because she's just wonderful, and uh, and we were just talking about death. <laughs> just that <laughs> what a way to topic. what a way to launch into it. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, everyone. <laughs> we're all going to die. <laughs> Um, it's true. From the yeah. moment the sperm hits the egg, we're hurtling towards the grave. Oh, God. And we pretend like it's this avoidable tragedy, but it ain't. Yeah. It's neither avoidable, nor does it have to be a tragedy. And I'm very aware that that might sound callous, speaking to you at this moment in time, having just experienced loss. And I'm not saying that it's not sad, but, you know, I think that we all know that person that's had that near death experience that's had to look death in the face. And I think something like losing a a close family member or losing a parent, makes you face your own mortality in a way that nothing else can. And I think when you look your own death in the face, you either live the rest of your life in fear or you wake up and you start to really utilize every moment that you have left because it's precious and we're not guaranteed any of it. Oh my God. It's so true. And some people obviously have the luxury of more years to their life, but some people die very young. And um, you were talking about your dad, mm-hmm. how your dad passed. Mm-hmm. How old was he when he died? He was 58. I was 24. Wow. And he had stage four liver cancer. Mm. And, you know, I tell a lot of people my story of like, oh, I was a Broadway person, which I was. I was on Broadway and I was super stressed. And then I found meditation. It changed my whole life. And that's all true. And we can share that story if we want to. But really the first thing that got me into this healing journey and got me fascinated with the body's ability to heal itself was actually my dad's sickness because I was on Broadway at the time and he got really sick. And so I left my show and came home to help take care of him. And when you think, oh, when you hear a cancer diagnosis, you think, well, oh, we have years. And by the time he was diagnosed, he had a 28 centimeter tumor on his liver. It was sarcoma and was a very aggressive form of cancer. And four weeks later he passed. Mm. And so, but in the, in that time, you know, the doctors were saying, you know, just send him to hospice. They, they sent us to nutritionist who gave us a six pack of insure, oh which is sugar water. And I remember just being like raging. And also he knew he was sick for a while and he had gone to the doctors and they were giving him Flonase. They were giving him nasal steroids. He knew he was seriously sick hmm. and they weren't doing any diagnostics. They weren't doing any tests. And so that's all frustrating and you want to have an enemy, you know, you want to have a villain, you want to have someone to blame, right. uh, but there was none of that. I mean, the reality was he was an alcoholic and he had anger issues and that stuff lives in your liver. And while we don't always bring on these illnesses, there is a connection between the spiritual challenges that we have and where things show up physically in our body for, for some of us, not always, but oftentimes that is the case. And Anyway, point of the story is that by the time I got home from my show, he was basically in a coma. He couldn't talk. He couldn't walk. He was basically bedridden. And so I did everything I could in the next 48 hours to just learn as much as I can about how to feed his body and how to starve the cancer. And we got this machine from Japan and we we called it the goldfish machine because goldfish don't get cancer. Hmm. They put their feet on. So you put your feet on this machine and it basically keeps them moving back and forth like a goldfish tail. Hmm. So even if you're too sick to exercise, it keeps the body oxygenated. Prevents bed sores. Probably Mm. they do that with your legs too. Mm. That would make sense. You keep the motion Mm -hmm. happening. And then we got this dome from Japan that had this special kind of radiation in it, which, I mean, this is years ago and I don't remember what it was called or so 
I'm sorry if you ask me on social media what it is. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, but we were doing, you know, we were doing juicing. We were following like the Gerson method and we were feeding him no sugar, no meat, no dairy, and all just anything we could do to strengthen the cells of his body. And within 48 hours, he was talking, walking up and down the stairs. He was able to say his goodbyes and actually have a much higher quality of life in the time that he had left. Wow. And that was very, very inspiring to me to see someone go from basically in a coma to actually being able to say goodbyes and have meaningful conversations with his family was healing not only for us, but I'm assuming also for him and helped to make that transition less painful. Like, of course, it's so painful, but um, knowing that you've said what you need to say, I think makes it easier for the living for sure. Was he, uh, kept at home or did, was he in hospice? He was at home. So we had hospice care at our house. And I mean, I don't know if you believe in angels. I didn't until I met hospice nurses. Oh my God. Like they're actual angel humans. Yeah. I, I don't know how they do what they do, but man, am I grateful for that. I've never, I mean, I've only been through dealing with hospice twice with my dad and then with his brother, my uncle. And we actually had the exact same hospice nurse and it was a, a man, a male nurse. And I don't, I don't know if that's common or not common in the hospice world, but this man is such a blessing in our family. And, and that's big, brave work to be there when people are born and to be there when people are, when they die, like these are fascinating, powerful moments in life. You know, I just, I have a six month old son. So I just went through the birthing process and it's equally as intense, but in a very different way. But, uh, I don't really have anything profound to say about them other than they are profound. Oh yeah, no. And they, and they see the craziest things. I mean, you know, people at at end of life on and on and on, it's just their dispositions are not often reflective of that. It's kind of like a job for them, but they're wonderful. I mean, my mom's hospice uh, nurses were incredible. And, you know, I, I became friendly with them actually because they were just so insightful and helpful and empathetic and compassionate. And I mean, in those moments, I feel like it's, it's hard for every human being because there's no, I feel like it's different for every person at the end of life. I mean, every condition is different. Everybody has different levels of pain, pain tolerance, you know, families are different. There's always a lot of stress in the family. I don't know if if you had that with your dad, but my family, I mean, there was, there was a lot going on, Mm -hmm. but I was thinking about getting one of my mom's hospice nurses on the podcast. I didn't, I don't, I don't know how, how I feel about that yet, but I feel like maybe that could be a, an interesting thing. But anyway, I, I want to, when you're ready, when it feels like time, I would highly encourage you to do that because I feel like, again, death is this thing that we don't talk about. It's just this big, giant boogeyman that we pretend isn't there. But if people are given some skills and hospice nurses are so equipped to deal with this because it is their job, I feel like they could help people to have tools to talk about it, to have these conversations so that we move into these what is inevitable with our eyes open. And I've been actually thinking about you a lot because I have a son and and I'm I'm falling in love with him and I'm getting to witness the unfolding of this mother-son relationship, which people say there's no, no bond like a mother-son relationship. Because if I'm very honest, I wanted a girl and I know that gender is a construct and blah, 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 but whatever. I'm a narcissist and I like seeing like a version of myself running around outside of myself. And um, I, mean, I don't know that I'm a full-blown narcissist, but I have some narcissistic old habits. And... Um, So anyway, when it was a boy, I was a little disappointed, to be honest, even though who knows he could be trans. Like, I get that all of that is we're living in a new era. (laughs) Um, But now that I'm getting to fall in love with this actual human, 
there it's really special this this bond it feels very powerful and while i'm falling in love with this new relationship you have simultaneously been losing this this similar bond with your mom and it's just i've been thinking about you a ton because it's it's strong and powerful and special and i can only imagine how proud your mom is of you for how much you love her how great of care you took of her and for dedicating your life's work to sharing these tools with people so that they can identify and prevent these same ailments. So thank you for your body of work. Oh man. Well, thank you for saying that. It's true. Just, you know, if you're listening, you guys make sure that the people that you love know how much you love them. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it could even be awkward to, to verbalize, you know, cause we're so used to keeping, I think our emotions internal. Whereas I think it's, as you mentioned earlier, like any of us can go at any time, you know, fuselage can fall from a jet overhead and take us out, you know, car accidents, sudden diagnoses of terminal illnesses, you know, it's just like, you really want to make sure that the people that, that you love know how much you love them every day. Mm-hmm. I recently heard a quote that said, having gratitude and not expressing it is like wrapping a present and not giving it. Wow. And I, I think same with love. You know, if you love someone and don't tell them, it's like wrapping up a gift and not giving them the present. I love that idea that a joy shared is doubled and a sorrow shared is halved. Hmm. So if you have love, if you have joy and you share it with someone, it's doubling it. Just like you were saying that some of your professional successes you loved sharing with your mom. And now to not have her to share it with makes the flavor of the successes change. You know, if I don't get to share it with her, then is it as joyful for me? Yeah. And I think that uh, it's it's just an opportunity to encourage people to keep sharing both the love, the sorrow and the joy. Well said. So let's talk about meditation (laughs) and how's that for a transition? (laughs) (laughs) Elegant, smooth. (laughs) I, uh, I was the last person on the world that I would think would ever start, uh, to develop a meditation practice, but I took your class and it was amazing. And now I'm so excited for your book, which I've, you know, begun to dug into and it's really, really good. How did you become interested in meditation? Because you mentioned briefly that you had this background in Broadway. Like, walk me through the, you know, the backstory of, of you know, my present day Emily Fletcher. Yeah, so I was on Broadway for 10 years. It's what I wanted to do since I was a little girl. I actually was on the bathroom floor of my mom's bathroom. She was showering. I was in fourth grade. I was reading the newspaper, you know, like you do on the floor of a bathroom. <laughs> and I saw an ad for this theater in my hometown, Tallahassee. It was for this place called Young Actors Theater. And I looked at the ad and I looked at my mom and I said, I'm going to go there. I'm going to be an actress. She was like, okay. And so I enrolled and cut to a few years later, I was on Broadway. And my first show about three weeks after I got my Broadway debut was the saddest I had ever been because I didn't have the wherewithal when I was in fourth grade and set this goal for myself to set another goal once I achieved that one. And I learned at a pretty young age that I was more interested in the happiness of pursuit than I was the pursuit of happiness. Because as we all know, our happiness does not lie on the other side of any person, place, or thing. And yet I really was convinced that mine did. Well, once I get on Broadway, then I will be happy. And I think that when you have really big, audacious goals, it's very easy to keep thinking that the happiness is on the other side of the attainment of the desire because the desire may never come, right? But mine came, like, after a couple weeks of being in New York. That's not true. It was a couple of years, but... Anyway, when I, my three weeks after Broadway, saddest I'd ever been. And because I was more interested in the joy and the excitement and the enthusiasm that happened when I was working towards it. So anyway, I didn't really put that all together cognitively yet. So I just thought next show, next boyfriend, next agent, next zero in the bank account, then I will be happy. I was 
eyeball deep in what I call the I'll be happy when syndrome. Hmm. And after 10 years of that, finally, my last show was a chorus line. I was understudying three of the lead roles, which means you show up to the theater with no idea what's going to happen that night, which character you're going to play. So I was basically living my life in this constant fight or flight. I was constantly stressed out that I was going to be thrown on, even if I wasn't on. And that led to insomnia. I had insomnia for 18 months. Uh, That led to me going gray at the tender age of 26. I started getting sick and injured. And here I am living my dream, doing the thing I had wanted to do since I was a child. And I was miserable. And so thankfully, this amazing woman was sitting next to me in the dressing room, understudying five of the leads, which is so hard, including Cassie, if you know the show. And this woman was crushing it. Every dance, every song, every bite of food, she'd be like, oh, this is sensational. (laughs) And she was Australian. And first I thought it was just because she was an Aussie. But then I realized, no, this is extra. She's extra happy. And I said, girl, what do you know that I don't know? And she said, I meditate. And I rolled my eyes and didn't believe her because this was 11 years ago. And there was not the neuroscience then that there is now. And so... I just kept sucking at my job, having insomnia, going gray. And finally, I thought, I have to do something. Like, I'm sucking at my job. I know that I'm sucking. This is not who I am. This is not the Emily Fletcher that moved to New York thinking I could accomplish whatever I wanted to. So long story short, I learned to meditate. First day of my first class, I was in a different state of consciousness than I had ever been in before, and I liked it. And then that night, I slept through the night for the first time in 18 months. Wow. And I have every night since, and that was 11 years ago. I mean, until I had a newborn, but that's a different story. (laughs) (laughs) That's not insomnia. That's a different kind of sleep deprivation. Uh, But anyway, it just, it started, I stopped going gray. I'm going to be 40 in March. I have one gray hair. I was legitimately going gray at my late 20s. I didn't get sick for eight and a half years. I did not get so much as a cold for eight and a half years. I used to get sick four to five times a year. I stopped getting injured, but most importantly, I started enjoying my job again. My, actually, my performance got better. Hmm. And so I thought, why does everybody not do this? So I left Broadway, I went to India, and I started what became a three-year training process to teach this. What I did was a little bit more akin to getting your PhD in the Vedas than it is like a weekend yoga certification. Not that there's anything wrong with the yoga certification. It's just what I did was transcribing books by hand in Sanskrit and thousands of hours of apprenticing and thousands of hours of meditating. And then since I've graduated, I've taught 15,000 people to meditate, which I'm very proud of. We started the world's first online meditation training. And now I just spent the past three and a half years working on this book, which is coming out, which I'm super excited about. And the whole goal of all of this This whole mission in life is now just to make these very powerful ancient tools accessible and attractive to a modern audience because the reality is there is too much unnecessary suffering on the planet. And my goal, my new mission in life is to eradicate unnecessary suffering. Mm. And again, I want to be cognizant of the fact that I feel mm -mm, just aware of the fact that you are in a time of life that I would consider necessary suffering. You know, when someone that we love more than anyone passes, like that is a painful time in life and there is suffering and there is sickness and there is death and that's part of the human experience. And so I'm not trying to minimize that or diminish that. My mission is to eradicate unnecessary suffering, Hmm. like insomnia, like anxiety, like overwhelm. These very, very solvable problems need to be solved. And the fact that we're all just allowing ourselves to be sick, tired, and stressed all the time is something that we have to solve. We have to fix it because it's, it's making us separated as a society. It's showing up. It's costing us money with healthcare. It's changing the economic divide, the political divide. Like all of this is happening as a byproduct of us being in stressed out fight or flight states of consciousness. Yeah. I mean, people are so stressed out. There was a, a, an article that came out. I, 
I forget what publication it was, but that like books on how to relieve anxiety was the fastest growing uh, sales sector for Barnes and Noble. Whoa. Yeah. Something wow. crazy. I mean, people are, well, I don't know if it's the climate, the fact that our diets have become so mangled and we know that, you know, that can produce feelings of anxiety. But what I love about Ziva and your method is that it's sort of a, a very modern take on this, on this ancient practice. I mean, I think when most people think about meditation, they think about oming and, you know, burning incense and things like that. But that is not, I didn't experience any of that when I took your class. No, I mean, there is a little bit of incense, but just for like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's no oming, there's no uncomfortable positions. You don't have to clear your mind. It's not about trying to be different than who you are. You don't have to stop eating meat. You don't have to change your lifestyle or your habits. It's basically, and, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. Like if that's your jam, if you like incense and being a vegetarian and sitting in uncomfortable positions, like you do you, not to judge that. But where I think this has become confusing for people is that a lot of the quote unquote meditation techniques that have been hugely popularized are actually adaptations of monastic practices, hmm. meaning that these are derivations of techniques that were originally designed for monks. And this is why a lot of people think that meditation is hard because we're trying to do something that wasn't designed for us. Hmm. It's only 1% of the world's population, less than 1% of the world's population that is monastic by nature, meaning that they are reclusive by nature. They are celibate by nature. They are not sacrificing their desire for sex to be closer to God. They don't have a desire for sex. Right? Like that's how you know if you're actually a monk. <laughs> okay. And where this gets tricky is that if you're trying to do monk meditation and you're not a monk, it's always going to feel hard. You're always going to feel like a failure because you can't quote unquote clear your mind. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing that I love about Ziva is that we've taken these ancient tools, but tools that were not designed for monks, they were actually designed for people with busy minds and busy lives. They are designed to be integrated into your day to make you better at life. Mm. They're designed to make you a, a better at your job, at your relationship, at being a parent, to integrate in a very quick fashion this deep healing rest so that after you do the meditation, you feel more awake, more energized, more creative, more connected versus, you know, stressed, overwhelmed, isolated, and alone, which is how a lot of people are living their lives day yeah. in and day out. In the book, you talk about three different types of meditation. You talk about manifesting, mm -hmm. mindfulness, mm -hmm. and then actual meditation. Yes. So can you define all these different types for us? Yes. So there are thousands of different types of meditation. You could put them in infinite amounts of categories, but for the purposes of the book, we really put it into three categories, mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting, the three M's that make up the Ziva technique. And again, where this gets a little confusing for folks is that we're using mindfulness and meditation as synonyms when they're not the same thing, because I think mindfulness is a less scary word for people, or certainly it was 20 years ago yeah. when no one was talking about this stuff. And, you know, thank you, John Kabat-Zinn, for bringing a lot of these Buddhist philosophies and techniques into the American zeitgeist and removing the scary Buddhist words so that it could be adapted and adopted by a mainstream American audience. But now that the stigma is sort of going away, you know, the neuroscience is in, you know, we know now, it's, you know, empirically been proved that meditation is good for you, that stress makes us sick and that meditation is a powerful stress relieving tool. So if we're meditating, then we're less likely to get any number of ailments. So like we get that. And as more neuroscience is coming in, I think the stigma around meditation is lessening. So people feel less weird and less hippy dippy for outing themselves as meditators. So with that has become this popularization. You've got infinite amount of YouTube channels, so many meditation apps out there, and they're quoting them. They're calling themselves quote unquote meditations, 
but I would actually call apps, YouTube videos, drop-in studios, I would put all of those into the category of mindfulness. And I would define mindfulness as the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. Beautiful, powerful, necessary. The art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. And we could all do a moment of mindfulness right now. You know, I could say inhale, and let's just do it. We'll just inhale through our nose and exhale through our mouth. Again, inhale through the nose, noticing the feeling of the breath as it enters the nostrils. And exhaling through your mouth and noticing how that feels tactilely in your mouth as the air exits your lungs. And one final time, just for fun, in through the nose. And exhaling out through your mouth, noticing the physical sensation of that exhale. Really good. So that would be a mindful breath. And that's when people say, you can meditate in one breath. But actually what they mean is you can practice mindfulness. You can bring your awareness into the present moment in a moment, in one breath. And again, beautiful, necessary. Mindfulness is very good at dealing with your stress in the now. My boss yelled at me. I'm feeling stressed. Let me do 10 minutes of this free app. I feel better in the now. It's like a state change. Like I have a headache. I take an aspirin. I feel better in the now. Now what meditation is doing and how I would define meditation is something that's giving your body deep healing rest, rest that's about five times deeper than sleep. And that's not insignificant because when you give your body the rest that it needs, it knows how to heal itself. And one of the things that it heals itself from is stress, but not only the stress in the now, all that stress from the past that has been accumulating in our body that has lodged itself in our cellular and now we know epigenetic memory. Right, so that bo- the, the dog that barked in your face when you were 12, your parents divorced when you were 13, like all that stuff gets stored in your cells and it has to go somewhere. And so while practicing the apps and the drop-in studios and the YouTube stuff, like that's all great, like guided visualizations, guided meditations, that mindfulness is awesome. It's not gonna handle all that stuff that's been stored in your cellular memory your whole life. And ultimately that lifetime of accumulated stress is what's bogging us down and slowing us down mentally and physically. And so this is really why I wrote this book to rebrand meditation as a performance tool is to A, educate people on the differences, but also let them know that If you do the work of actually meditating every day, it's like you're pulling weight off of a propeller. You know, it's like the propeller can start to turn as it is designed. Whereas what we do in the West is we have a symptom and then we medicate it. So it's like putting a brick on side of one one propeller. Hmm. And so then the other two prongs of the propeller prop up and then we have these other symptoms and then we have to mask those symptoms. So we put some more bricks on the propeller and then we we, uh, weight those down. And then the other side of the propeller you know, hits back up and then we have this sure. other symptom and then we put another brick on and then after a while we've got so many bricks, we're taking so many pharmaceuticals that the propeller can't even rotate one revolution anymore. And so what we do with meditation is we go in and we take those bricks off of the propeller so that the body and the brain can function as they are designed. And this feels like you have superpowers, but you're actually just functioning as nature intended. I do not believe that nature intended for us to be sick, tired and stressed all the time. No, not at all. And so like before taking your class, when people would ask me if I meditated, I would say something like, yeah, I, well, I don't meditate, but I go to the gym, which is like meditative for me. And you were like, that's BS, Max. <laughs> <laughs> so why are things that are meditative for us? Like what's the difference between doing something that's meditative and meditation? Well, I think as long as you're using the term meditative, yeah. that then 
suggests that it is an adjective that's saying meditation like it's putting me in a state of consciousness that is similar to the state of consciousness that I experience when I meditate. Mm. And I don't have that much of a problem with the term meditative, right? Like that I get. But when people say to me, exercise is my meditation, cooking is my meditation, Facebook is my meditation, (laughs) I'm like, no, wrong, incorrect. Cooking is called cooking, exercise is called exercise, and meditation is called meditation. That's why they have their own words. But what people are actually saying is cooking relaxes me, exercise relaxes me. Um, But where I just want to educate folks is that Exercise is exciting the nervous system, whereas meditation is de-exciting the nervous system. And exercise is good enough to handle the stress that you have encountered or experienced during today. Mm -hmm. So again, my boss yelled at me at work. I launched into a fight or flight stress reaction. I go to the gym and I get to outrun that imaginary predator, that tiger, that lion, that bear. I get to get on the treadmill and outrun that tiger so I can burn off today's stress chemistry. Or I can go to the boxing ring and I can fight that tiger or that lion or that bear. So you're burning off today's stress chemistry, which again, useful. But if you want to deal with the old stress, that you've been accumulating your whole life, that stuff that's ultimately slowing us down and keeping us from performing at the top of our game, then we have to give the body rest. Just like if you don't sleep, your body does not function as it was designed. Well, same, same. Our sleep sucks these days because we got Wi-Fi. We're looking at screens all day. Our circadian rhythms are messed up. We're eating food that isn't food. So we are not sleeping (laughs) as we're designed to be sleeping, which is making the meditation even more imperative. Yeah. I would almost compare it to like, that backlog of stress, like impacted fecal matter. Gross and yeah. true. Super gross, but like <laughs> viscerally, that's kind of what it feels like. You're and carrying around all this literal shit with you. And I feel like meditation is such a great, it's a great way of purging it, you know, like yes. finally getting rid of it. And that is actually an interesting point that if you're doing a meditation technique that is what I would say worth its salt and it's actually up-leveling your state of consciousness, which is going to make you faster and better in life. And the way, you know, people will ask me, well, how do I know if my meditation is working? And I'll say, well, your life will get better. But anyway, when people start to really engage in powerful practices like these, there is a period of emotional and physical detox that happens in the first few weeks and sometimes even months. And for some people, it is literally going to the bathroom. They're like, I can't stop going to the bathroom. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you're, when you're stressed, your digestion shuts down, you know, because the body reacts to stress, basically preparing for a predatory attack. And so the first thing that happens when we launch into fight or flight is our digestion floods with acid to shut down digestion because you cannot afford to waste that energy digesting food when you're about to be attacked by a tiger. Hmm. You need all hands on deck to deal with a predator. That same acid seeps onto your skin, which um, so that you don't taste very good if you get bitten into by that tiger, mm. um, which is ultimately what leads to um, expediated body age. Uh, your bladder and bowels will evacuate, so you can be light on your feet. Your adrenaline levels increase, cortisol levels increase, your immune system goes to the back burner because mm. who cares about cancer if there's a tiger coming at you? So the series of chemical reactions is super useful if your demands are in fact predators. But if it's in-laws or kids or red eyes or breakups, then this fight or flight thing has become irrelevant. It's actually become maladaptive. It's actually disallowing us from being present. It's disallowing us from performing at the top of our game. Wow. So what is the Ziva technique and like what version of it do you uh, offer readers that go and pick up your book? Mm -hmm. So... The Ziva technique is that trifecta, mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting. And P.S., I didn't really define the, the third M. Manifesting. Which, yeah, which is simply manifesting gets a little bit of a bad rap. It sounds a little hippy-dippy or woo-woo. But to me, it's just consciously creating a life you love. 
It's getting intentional about what you want your life to look like. How much money do I want to make this year? What's my dream relationship look like? What do I want my relationship with my body to feel like? Where's my dream home? And instead of spending that energy worrying or complaining, we instead take the same amount of energy and put it towards the creative, towards imagining our dreams as if they're happening now. So what I teach in the book is called the Z technique, and it's an adaptation of what I teach here at the studio. We're in our studio here in Soho right now, and an adaptation of what I teach online because we, like I said, make the online meditation training. So people move through all three M's and all of my trainings are matriculations. They are all designed to make you self-sufficient. So by the time you read this book, by the time you move through any of my trainings, once you graduate, you have these tools to take with you for life. You're not dependent on me. You don't need an app, a finger symbol, a shaman, a guy playing a drum on your chest. (laughs) You don't need anything in order to meditate. Like all you need is a place to sit. And I'm very big on self-sufficiency, right? the coffee you drank two weeks ago is not going to give you energy today. And the meditation you did last month is not going to make you more conscious or more present today. You have to actually do the stuff every single day. Um, So I teach folks, we start with the mindfulness because I think that that is a beautiful appetizer or runway into that deep healing surrendered rest that is meditation. And then the dessert course is the manifesting where we've just accessed that right brain. We've just tapped into this collective intelligence, whatever you want to call it, your own intuition. And to manifest from that place, having just given your body this deep healing rest of the meditation, I find is a very powerful time to do that. And I've also found that the combination of meditation and manifesting is much more powerful than either one alone. Because hmm. you can meditate all day, but if you're not clear about what it is that you want, it's very hard for nature to give you the thing. Yeah. And conversely, you could make a million vision boards and watch the secret on repeat. But if you are not meditating and your body is riddled with stress, chances are you don't believe that you deserve your desires. Right. And we don't get what we want in life. We get what we believe we deserve. So true. So true. So what does it actually look when it comes to actually getting to the, to the mat, to the chair? What, I mean, what is it, what does that entail? So it's super simple. You just, you, I recommend that people have their back supported and their head free. You don't have to have any fancy fingers. You don't have to be uncomfortable. You could be literally on a couch, on a bed with pillows behind you. So you don't need any special cushions. You don't need any headbands. You don't need any neurofeedback. Like you can do that stuff if you want to. But again, the way that you'll know if the meditation is working is that your whole life will get better. Hmm. <laughs> then you don't really need the neurofeedback. Well, that's such a relief because I, before I learned to meditate, I used to think that you had to sit upright without back support with your fingers like doing a mudra, right? Like on your, on your knees. And one of the biggest barriers to entries for me was that that was never a comfortable position for me. My back always hurt. My butt hurt. And so I like that we can just like sit anywhere. Yeah. Comfort is key. And now I will say a caveat here is that I have done, so there will probably be some comments and folks sharing that they've done Vipassana retreats. And I have as well. I did my first Vipassana retreat, uh, I think two years ago. And for those who haven't heard that word, Vipassana is a 10-day silent meditation retreat with no phones, no books, no music, no eye contact, no talking. It's silent and you are by yourself. You only eat two meals a day. You're in meditation for about 10 to 11 hours a day, hours on end without moving. And there's an extreme amount of physical pain, or at least there was for me. And the pain becomes the teacher. But that is a very, very different style of meditation than what I teach at Ziva. And I think beautiful, but I would liken Vipassana to psychic surgery. 
you know, you go and there, there are some massive insights that happen and some big, extreme, big changes that can happen because basically you're in so much physical pain that you have to figure out a way to stop avoiding the pain. And once you do that, you have this extreme pleasure that gets released into your body. And then the trick is how do I not chase the pleasure and how do I not avoid the pain? And if you can do that, if you can stop chasing pleasure and avoiding pain, that gives you a level of mastery over almost everything in your life. And so I think that Vipassana is valuable and there is some value to the more austere, more monastic practices. I'm not poo-pooing them in any way, but I do not know one person, myself included, and I'm a professional meditation teacher, I do this for a living. <laughs> I do not know one person who has kept up their Vipassana practice after the retreat. Interesting. Because it's two hours a day, and like to your point, you're in physical pain. So who wants, A, who has the time for that? B, who wants to put themselves into pain? Whereas the Ziva technique is, is only like 15 to 20 minutes. The technique I teach in the book is 15 minutes twice a day. You do it in the morning, so you could do it before you have your coffee, and then meditation into coffee is like, whoo, look out world, like you are ready to rack. <laughs> And then the second time you do it, you know, somewhere mid-afternoon, early evening where you would have had that afternoon coffee or you would have taken a nap or you start to feel yourself getting foggy or making mistakes, you just close your eyes and you go into this practice and then 15 minutes feels like such a long time. But what you find is that the level of productivity and creativity and efficiency that you have on the other side gives you hours more productivity, the serendipity, synchronicity, your sleep gets better, you get sick less often. So it's actually giving you time if you agree that stress makes you stupid, sick, and slow, which it does. I would agree with that. And uh, you get uh, a mantra. It's like a, a mantra meditation. So that is one of the techniques in the meditation piece. Yes, we use something called a mantra. Now, that word has also been a little hijacked by the <laughs> wellness industry. <laughs> what hasn't? <laughs> I know. Thank you so much for just really myth-busting right and left. <laughs> and like, like, actually, that's not true, everyone. So mantra... The term at this day and age sort of means affirmation because everyone's like, Mantra Monday, my mantra is I'm a strong, angry woman. <laughs> or my mantra is I deserve abundance. And that's all great. Like affirmations are awesome. I'm actually really into affirmations at the moment. The way that we use mantras is mantra is a Sanskrit word. Man means mind, tra means vehicle. So we're using these mantras as mind vehicles. And the book versus my online course versus the in-person course, the mantras are different in each and they have varying degrees of power or efficacy. And that's by design because what I can teach in person is very different than what I can teach online or in a book because this stuff is not, it's not a toy. It's like not a play date at the meditation studio. Like this stuff is legit, very powerful, sometimes, uh, healing catharsis inducing techniques and so it's important that you have some guidance some community someone that can help you through that journey especially if you're dealing with depression or anxiety or have ever dealt with any suicidal thoughts or have gone through trauma like this is why i think it's important to have a community and a teacher is that if you are dealing with extreme depression or anxiety and then you start a very powerful meditation practice and you don't have any support, that can be super intense and be overwhelming. So even folks who read the book, there's, they're going to have access to a beautiful global online community where they'll be able to get support from me, from my fellow Ziva teachers, from other longtime meditators in the community. So there will be that global support system. Um, but yes, we use a mantra and the mantra is designed to be sort of like a mind anchor. It's designed to go in and be the thing that induces that deep healing rest. Mm. Um, the thing, how I said that meditation is giving you rest that's about five times deeper than sleep. Yeah. So it's that's not a totally accurate thing to say because 
it's a different kind of rest. So to say that it's five times as deep isn't 100% accurate because when you're sleeping, your brain is chilling and your body's on guard. You know, it's like your body is revving quite high when your brain is in sleep state because you need to be prepared for a predator attack. So the opposite happens when we meditate. When we meditate, metabolic rate decreases, which is the rate with which the body consumes oxygen. Heart rate slows, body temperature cools. Now, the trick here is that nature will not let you rest that deeply physically and be in blackout sleep mentally at the same time, because at that point, you're an evolutionary liability. So basically, one or the other has to be on guard. When we're sleeping, brain is chilling, body's on guard. When we're meditating, body's chilling, brain is on guard. And I I say that to folks to let them let themselves off the hook. This means that if you've ever felt like a meditation failure because you couldn't quote unquote clear your mind, or if you've ever sat down to meditate and been super annoyed by the tick-tock of a clock or the siren that went by or your dog scratching in the next room, you are not a meditation failure. Meditation will not make you deaf. It does not magically stop your mind from thinking the drop of a hat. Your mind still is thinking and you're very aware of sounds. Like you almost have spidey senses when you're practicing. And it is that hyper mental alertness. It is that hyper mental consciousness that allows the body to get such deep rest. Mm. And it is that deep physical rest that allows us to be more awake on the other side, which is the very thing that makes this a performance enhancing tool. Hmm. I love it. I I mean, I, I, love when, um, I learned from you that, you know, meditation is not really about stopping your thoughts. You know, because I feel like that's a, a, a common misconception. Yeah. And where this, I think, has been confusing is everyone is saying, oh, just clear your mind or I can't meditate because I can't clear my mind. And we're sort of confusing the results for the process. So while it is possible to access other states of consciousness and it is possible to move beyond the realm of thinking into the realm of being like that is possible or I would not have a job where we mess this up is that we go into the meditation saying, all right, brain, shut up. I sure would like a snack. Hmm, snacks are delicious. Maybe I should have some avocado. Max recommends avocados in his book. <laughs> I love avocados. I love Max. Wait, now I'm thinking about Max in my meditation. Oh no, no, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about Max in my meditation. I suck at meditation. I quit. <laughs> and that is the beginning and the end of most people's meditation career. And it makes me sad because they potentially robbed themselves of a lifetime of bliss and fulfillment and better performance because they're judging themselves based on misinformation. This one dude out there telling everybody that in order to meditate, we have to clear our mind. And so while it is possible to access different states of consciousness, you're not going to get there by going into the practice of a technique being like, brain shut up. So having those thoughts is completely normal. It is totally normal. Okay. Totally normal. It does not mean you're a meditation failure. The mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. So you guys, if you're like making dinner or if you've been listening with one ear out and one ear in, like, listen up, this is super duper important. And this one piece of information could change the rest of your meditation career. The mind thinks involuntarily just like the heart beats involuntarily. So trying to give your brain a command to shut up is as effective as trying to give your heart a command to stop beating. It does not work. 
And yet this is the criteria by which most of us are judging ourselves. Oh, I tried to meditate. I couldn't do it. I just kept thinking about work. I just kept thinking about my ex-boyfriend. I was having too many thoughts. I know that meditation is good for me, but my brain is really crazy. I have so many thoughts when I'm meditating. I hear this all day, every day. And so I'm really on a bit of a warpath here to just re-educate people that thoughts are not the enemy of meditation. Effort is. I found that I um, gained a lot when I would have those thoughts and acknowledge them and then um, sort of gracefully kind of shift my consciousness back to the mantra. But acknowledging like that it's totally normal to have those thoughts and then just sort of being very delicate about just bringing your consciousness back to the mantra. Yes. And then, so that's important, right? Yes, because if if every time you have a thought, you're like, oh crap, I'm thinking again. Stupid meditator, I'm bad meditator. Then, then you use effort and you come back with a lot of force. Right. And it's, each time feels like a mini failure. And none of us will do anything for very long that we feel like we're failing at. Hmm. And then, so how, how does that spill over to when we're not in the chair? I mean, would you say that, that's a, that that allows us then to tackle stressful events um, you know, areas in our life where, you know, there's maybe tension with more grace and ease as well? Well, I think that what I would call the art of surrender, the power of surrender, which is very much what I teach. I joke that my class is really not a meditation class at all, but it's more of a class in surrendering. I call it surrendering school. Hmm. And I know that high performers don't really like that word because they feel like it means giving up. But to me, surrendering is not giving up. It is trusting that nature has more information than we do. It's trusting our bodies. It's trusting these ancient techniques and practices trusting the simplicity of them. You know, when you go to sleep at night, you're not trying to sleep. You're not like, oh, liver, clean my blood. Oh, skin, rejuvenate my cells. Oh, brain, move those new memories into old memory folders. (laughs) Like you're not trying to do anything. You just lay down, you fall asleep. And And the body and brain run a whole host of healing modalities. Well, same, same in this style of meditation. You're not trying to meditate. You're surrendering to the process. And it does take, it is a skill, right? Just because it's simple doesn't mean that it's easy. And I would say this is your brain that you're dealing with. So it might behoove you to invest a little bit of time into training, <laughs> you know, training yourself and how to use the single most powerful stress reducing brain enhancing tool that we have. Um, so it does require a bit of training, but once you have it, then it's ridiculously simple and the return on investment is exponential. And part of that comes from, to your point, we get really good at surrendering in the chair. And what, what, no, what we notice is that the less effort we use in the meditation, the better it feels. And then the more we have that dopamine and serotonin hit in the meditation itself. And then as we start to get good at and even enjoy the art of surrendering when we're meditating, we start to be better at it in our life. And when we start to go through life with this sense of detachment and surrender and trust, then we make some space for some magic to happen. Mm. We allow a little bit of room for nature to show up versus us trying to control everything with our limited left brain individuality. When the reality is we have 50% left brain, 50% right brain. And this is not scientific, but the way I see it is left brain is individuality, right brain is totality. Mm. So it's like the left brain is like a very advanced laptop computer. The right brain is the Wi-Fi router. The, wi- the right brain is the piece of you that you're taking to the gym when you meditate and the piece of you that allows you to tap into that collective consciousness, to your own intuition. It's, it's the thing that allows you to listen to your own gut. And the thing is that intuition usually whispers. And if you don't have a meditation practice, then the screaming of your critical mind <laughs> is very hard to hear 
over. It's very hard to hear the whisper of intuition when your critical mind is screaming. Yeah. What do you say to people that are like on the fence listening to this? That, you know, maybe they're too busy. They've got, you know, a bunch of screaming children running around the house. They've worked two jobs. I mean, how can we convince them that meditation is something that they're going to seriously benefit from? Okay. Great question. Thank you for asking. So I have two answers to this. The first is that if you look at basically all of the super elite performers on planet earth right now today, about 90 to 95% of them all start their day with meditation. The Bill Gates, the Oprah Winfrey's, the Ray Dalio's, the Seahawks, the Hugh Jackman's, Ellen DeGeneres's, the Chining Tatum's, you know, like these people are not meditating because they have copious amounts of extra time. They're not meditating. They're like, mm, I have nothing to do today. Let me just sit down and waste my time. They're doing it because they know that if they invest, if they make a 15 to 20 minute investment in their brain at the beginning of the day, they're going to perform better for the rest of the day. And a lot of folks like Ray Dalio, who's the most successful hedge fund manager in history, attributes his financial success to meditation. Wow. And you hear this time and time again, because the reality is stress makes us stupid. That when you are stressed, when you are in that involuntary fight or flight stress reaction, you are wasting your energy. You are burning cycles mentally and physically preparing for an imaginary tiger attack. That tiger's not actually out to get you. There's a reason why you can't find your keys when they're in your hand, when you're stressed out about leaving the house. There's a reason why you can't find your glasses when you're freaking out about where your glasses are, because stress makes you stupid. Or the reason why you can't come up with that super witty comeback that comes to you after you've had the argument, right? Yes, exactly. Because you're just not thinking, you're not able to think creatively when you're in the midst of a fight or flight response. Exactly. And so one interesting point on that is that when you're practicing this style of meditation, because it's different than mindfulness, whereas mindfulness, we're directing our focus. So any guided meditation, I'm calling that mindfulness mindfulness because you're directing your focus in a certain way, which is very different than the meditation that I teach, which is all about surrender and letting go. Now what's happening in the brain, if you actually look at brain scans of meditators practicing different techniques with mindfulness or focused meditation, a small part of the brain lights up, but very, very bright, which is different than meditation because the whole brain lights up, but not as bright. And when the whole brain lights up, that's the thing that increases neuroplasticity. That's the thing that strengthens the corpus callosum, which is that thin white piece, that white matter that connects the gray matter. It's a thin white strip that connects the right and left hemispheres of the brain. And I actually didn't know this until pretty recently, but that the right and left hemispheres of the brain are almost completely separate, except for this little tiny thing called the corpus callosum. Now, what we've known for a long time is that meditators have thicker corpus callosums than non-meditators, but we weren't able to prove if that was causal or correlated. But now we know that the longer you meditate, the thicker the corpus callosum becomes, which suggests that it is in fact causal. And so cool party trick, but why do I want a fat corpus callosum? Well, I think everyone should, and here's why. Left brain is in charge of the past and the future, individuality, critical thought, math, balancing your checkbooks. Super important. Most of us have overdeveloped left brains. It's what our whole education system is designed to teach us. Left brain, past, future, think, take action, achieve, make money so we can be happy in the future. Meanwhile, we have this whole other 50% of the machine, the right brain, which is in charge of intuition, creativity, present moment awareness, color, music, connectedness, creative problem solving. And so when we start these meditative practices, we start to take the right brain to the gym. We start to strengthen the corpus callosum. We start to increase neuroplasticity. The whole brain starts to light up. And to your point, it that very thing 
is what allows us to come up with those witty comebacks in the middle of the fight with our partner <laughs> instead of two hours later when you're like, why didn't I say this funny thing then? <laughs> or your boss is yelling at you like, why did you miss this deadline? And you're like, oh, and you just freeze, right? right? It's like you coming up with a great solution three hours later is not going to get you the promotion. Right. You got it. It's when it go time. That's when it matters. <laughs> I love that. So important. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, many of the people that are, you know, changing the world, you've actually coached, you know, you travel all, all around the world. You're one of the premier meditation teachers around. Was there anything that um, you encountered over the course of writing the book that surprised you? Any new insights that um, maybe you were not privy to before? Yes. So two things come to mind. One is a story that I, I did know before, but I shared it in the book. And then the other is when I reached out to my community, I said, hey, you guys, I'm working on this book. I want to take a deep dive into some of your stories, like who feels brave and willing to share your story so I could include case studies. And I do at the end of almost every chapter, there's a case study about someone who's had an extreme transformation with their sleep or their sex life. Actually, this one woman, she had never had an orgasm ever in her whole life. She was like late 20s, early 30s. And then the week after she took the course, she had her first orgasm in her whole life. And I was so happy for her. And then this other woman said she was never able to have orgasm vaginally. But then after taking the course, every time she has sex, she's able to orgasm vaginally, which for those of you who might not know, that's relatively rare. Like a lot of women orgasm more externally, like from clitoral stimulation versus vaginal stimulation. So anyway, that was a big shift for her. I don't know why I just went there, but those were things that surprised me. Well, that's super interesting. Most people don't connect meditation with sex, but that's actually that you were giving a talk on meditation and sex when we met. Where? At the Bulletproof Conference. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. <laughs> how medit? What was your talk called? It was like how meditation. Oh, I don't remember. Makes I think you that was like lover or something. <laughs> <laughs> I've given a bunch, but I think that there's one. Like there's a whole chapter in the book called "From Om to OMG." Oh man. And it's basically talking about this thing which no one's talking about because most people think they associate meditation with monastic practices. So they think one, they shouldn't be thinking at all and they certainly shouldn't be thinking about sex. But what I've found is that I've heard from so many students, they're like, Emily, you joked about having better sex, but like what's happening is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and there's all sorts of you know factors here. One is that there's a, you know an opening up of energetic meridians in the body and a lot of us gets blocked in that sexual energetic center in the body. Um, another thing that happens is we're just effing tired. And actually 40% of cohabitating couples in America America attribute the number one reason to not having as much sex as they want to is that they're too tired. And if this meditation is giving you rest, that's five times deeper than sleep, then it stands to reason that you might have a little bit more energy to have some adult playtime. Also, I found out that if female cortisol levels are too high, they become incapable of orgasm. And similarly, if male adrenaline levels are too high, it constricts the vascular system and disallows them from having an erection. So it's basically like if you're stressed, again, your body is preparing for the predatory attack. So it's, it's not interested in procreation. Right. It's like we got to survive this meat suit. We can't worry about little baby meat suits coming right. out later. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, yeah. So the surprising thing. Um, one, this happened when I was teaching. I was doing a private... And this was a couple and this gentleman was in his late sixties and he had Parkinson's and it was pretty pronounced. Like he had a pretty pronounced tremor and he was a little self-conscious about it. He didn't really want to talk about it. I was, he would hold his hands or put his hands behind his back. So I, I didn't really talk to him about it, but we did the first day and we did this ceremony and then, um, you know, I gave him his mantra and he started saying it out loud, which we do in the very beginning and his tremors got very pronounced. Hmm. And then when he closed his eyes and started doing it silently, his tremor stopped. 
instantaneously. And it felt like a miracle. It felt like I was witnessing a miracle. And it was very moving to me. I'd never seen anything like that. And I started crying. And But I was trying to be cool about it because I could tell he was a little shy about the tremors. And so I tried to just be nonchalant. But afterwards, when we opened our eyes, he said, did you notice that my tremors stopped? And I said, I did notice. And about five minutes afterwards, when we finished the meditation, they came back. And then the next day, same thing. We closed his eyes. He started using his mantra and the tremors stopped. And afterwards, about 10 minutes later, they came back. And then the next day, it was 15 minutes. And then the next day, it was 20. And, and so it felt, it looked like a miracle to me. But then as I did more research, I realized that dopamine and serotonin, which are bliss chemicals, are they actually use synthetic versions of dopamine in, in um, Parkinson's treatment. Mm-hmm. And so when you are waking up your own organic chemistry, you're waking up your own internal organic pharmacy, that you can create natural antidotes to a lot of these things. Now, I am not claiming that meditation can cure Parkinson's. It did not cure his. It was, you know, too far gone. But what it, what I did witness in this particular case is that it was giving him a reprieve. By him flooding his brain and body with dopamine and serotonin, it was giving him a moment of reprieve. And that reprieve seemed to last longer and longer every time he got to the chair. Super interesting. I mean, the the gold standard dr- treatment for Parkinson's disease is literally a dopamine supplement, but it has no disease modifying effect. So you take this L-dopa, which is Cinemat, carbido- Carbidoba Levodopa, and it basically... That's a great name. Can we just say Carbidoba Levodopa? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. It's um, But it basically offers just that, a reprieve from symptoms, and then it, it wears off. But it's interesting that if you know meditation causes such a pronounced boost in dopamine that it would have the same you know, temporary effect. Mm-hmm. And, and also in an organic way. And it's also meaning that you're using your own internal pharmacy, mm. which what I've noticed is that most external drugs, be it sugar, coffee, alcohol, pot, whatever, or pharmaceuticals, they cost you something. And when you, and while, and what meditation costs you is your time, Hmm. right? You have to invest the time on the front end. But what I have found is that your return on time invested is exponential. It's amazing. Man, well, we're almost out of time. I feel like we can keep going forever. But um, I'm going to ask you the last question, the question that uh, every guest on The Genius Life gets asked. But before we get to that, how can listeners find out more about you, um, connect with you on social media, sign up for uh, your you know online Ziva course or buy the book. Where is it? Where is it available? Yeah, so the book is available anywhere books are sold. Pub date is February nineteenth, and you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere books are sold. And then if you get this before February, well, well, this is going up February twentieth, yeah. so that means that oh. your book came out yesterday. Oh, exciting! <laughs> so, all right, exciting. Um, so then you can just go to Amazon and get the book. That's Dope. the that's the best way. And then you can connect with me anywhere on social media, just at Ziva Meditation. So Z-I-V-A meditation. And then the home where everything lives, where you can find out about the book, the online course, the in-person course, that is all at zivameditation.com. So cool. Um, All right, Emily Fletcher, what to you is the meaning of a genius life? Mm. A genius life is when you are living into your full potential. You're utilizing all the gifts that nature gave you, intellectually, spiritually, physically, that you're taking the steps to eradicate anything keeping you from stepping into your full potential, doing everything that you can do, and then allowing room for nature to show up and do the rest. I love that. That was so succinct and beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cool. 
Well, this was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I love you so much. I love the work that you do. Thank and you. I'm really grateful for your friendship. And I've learned a lot from your podcast, from your book. I just think you're, you're an awesome human. Oh, man. It means a lot to me. Thank you so much. And to all you guys out there listening in podcast land, thank you as always for tuning in. I value your time and attention. This has been another episode of The Genius Life. Peace.